Welcome to the Founder Haven podcast. I'm Sarah Miller. In my conversations with founders, we learn more about their journey into founderhood and how they navigated the tough stuff. Good morning, Arian. Good morning. How are you today? I'm doing well. It's so good to see you. And thank you for sharing your time today. So happy to be here. Awesome. All right, let's dive right in. I have so many questions for you. Um, Just because I met you, what was it, like a few weeks ago for the first time, and I had first come across you on Twitter. I saw somebody mentioned you in a feed. They said, this is a founder that we really need to be watching. And as I looked into you a little bit more and saw the company you're building, Palady, I was really struck by, by this company and by the mission that you're on. So maybe we could start off with you just sharing a little bit about what Palady is and, and what has led you down this path. Sure. So Palady is a comprehensive platform that's intended for patients, family members, caregivers, clinicians, and hospital systems. And really the, the whole point of Palady was to create a platform in which all of these entities and individuals could participate and get quality evidence-based palliative care medicine um, so that they can regain agency and, and some control during a time in their lives where oftentimes that's not the case and people feel very lost and overwhelmed and need a lot more support than they, they traditionally have gotten. Um, and one really, step back. Can I interject for one second? Can you go, go one it. step back yeah. and actually say what palliative care is? Because sure. as somebody who has also worked in palliative care and in hospice, I think so yeah. many people actually don't even know what palliative care is. So one step Absolutely. back and then I'll let, I'll let you go. And then we'll go forward. Sure. Yeah, then we'll go forward. So, um, so people often confuse palliative and hospice and they're not the same thing. They're part of a continuum. So Palliative medicine patients often will wind up on hospice towards the end of their disease trajectory, but palliative medicine is essentially meant for patients who are struggling and living with serious illness. So it could be end-stage heart failure, lung failure, kidney disease, liver disease, metastatic cancer, or any kind of progressive neurologic disease. So someone who's had a significant stroke, Parkinson's, MS, dementia, ALS, they're all diseases, and, and we all know these people, right? They are people who we live with and work with and, and have in our families who may have a serious diagnosis, but they're still expected to live for an extended period of time. Yeah. And so the goal of palliative medicine is really to support those patients while they're going through what's called disease-modifying treatment. So there's something I can do that can change the behavior of your illness. And you become eligible for hospice when one of two things happens, either A, we as a medical system have run out of things to modify your disease course, or you as a patient have said, thanks so much for offering me that, but I'm really not interested in doing it. Um, And so I think there's a lot of anxiety and and myths and misconceptions about both palliative and hospice. But at the end of the day, clinicians who work in this field, their whole purpose in life is to support patients and families living well with a serious illness. It's not about dying. It's actually about living. And so the goal of Palady, you know, you asked sort of what led me here. So I started my training as an emergency medicine physician. I then uh, did a master's in traditional Chinese medicine. I then boarded in hospice and palliative and became pain trained. And one of the reasons I went down this path was because of my own experience of being a patient. And I became very um, sort of distraught, really, Mm -hmm. by the lack of agency and control when you're a patient. 
right? You aren't in control necessarily of your treatment plan. You're not necessarily in control of what your body is doing. Um, you know, I, I use the term death by a thousand paper cuts, but you know, you, there are all these things that happen that change what you thought your life was going to look like and what your experience was going to look like. And they impact your friends, they impact your family, they impact your employment, they impact every aspect of your life. And yet we don't really have a great system in place in this country to support those patients, families, caregivers, even clinicians, as we are attempting to help someone with a very serious illness. And so for me, I, in the last couple of years with COVID and everything that I was seeing, I was like, this is ridiculous. People are dying on iPads. No one is talking about death and dying. Um, we as a culture have been very reticent to talk about it. Um, and sadly, it's also been turned into a political football, which I find very disheartening. Um, and at the end of the day, what really matters, you know, to to me as a patient and every patient I've ever you know, worked with and laid hands on is that relationship and that trust with their physician and their clinician team. And they, they want that back and I want them to have access to it. And so palliative medicine clinicians are, are the rate limiting step right now. We don't have enough of us. So there are about 7,600 physicians who are boarded in hospice and palliative medicine and about 18,000 nurses. And we have 14 million patients right now who need us. And that number is expected to hit 63 million. So there's no way for us to ramp up the access without using digital health and technology. And so that's where Pallity is going to come in. Yeah, exactly. So let me go back. You said you said something about um, it's, it's really about what I'm hearing you say anyway, is it's really about giving people more time. Yes. And more I time and to, quality time. Yes. And what I, I'm really struck by that because a few weeks ago, when I first met you, you were actually running really late to our meeting. If you recall, I do <laughs> apologies. No, no, no. It's totally fine. So you, I, it was like, you know, 15 past or whatever. And you're frantically, you know, you're emailing I'm like, I'm coming, I'm coming. I just had a patient who needed more time. Yes. And you got on with me and you said, I had a patient who just needed more time. Mm -hmm. It really struck me. It really struck me just because in my own work with, with clients and patients, I do believe there are people who just need more time. And so I was kind of curious, how has this sort of like, I would call that kind of a life philosophy. I don't know if you would, mm -hmm. but tell me a little bit more about what is it about people needing more time? Well, I think healthcare in this country has has morphed. Um, I've been in practice for 20 years. And in those 20 years, I've seen it morphing from a really wonderful place to be, both as a clinician and as a scientist, as a researcher. Um, medicine is fascinating, right? None of us, none of us do the same thing, right? We there are patterns within medicine, we detect patterns in medicine, we treat diseases. But at the end of the day, what it comes down to is that very intimate relationship that happens between a patient and their care team, right? And the care team can be multidisciplinary. I'm not just referring to physicians, but it's about that relationship and it's about trusting that relationship. And I think the part that has struck me is that with, with sort of the commoditizing, if I can use that word of healthcare, what has happened is, is it's turned into an efficiency vehicle, right? How many patients can a primary care physician turn through literally and giving people 15 minute appointments? It just takes seven 
minutes to fill out the different things on an electronic medical record that are required in order to bill. Mm -hmm. It's not about the patient anymore. It's not about the clinician anymore. It's not about the science and the art of medicine anymore. It's become about regulatory requirements and insurance requirements and pre-authorizations and, and how many people can you see faster. And I don't think that medicine should ever be about those things. I mean, I get it. I, you know, I'm an entrepreneur. I get it. No money, no mission. You can't get anything to happen unless you can fund it. But when you look at the growth that has happened in healthcare, and, and it's funny, you can go Google this. Actually, everybody who's watching this, go Google this. Google growth of administration versus growth of physicians. Yeah. And there's a chart and you'll see the chart and it's disturbing and alarming. And basically the growth of clinicians has kind of gone up like this. And then when you look at what happens to the administrative aspect, it goes like that. Mm -hmm. And that is not helping anyone who's actually delivering the care. So when you talk about time, if you're a patient with a serious illness or even not, you're a healthy person who's just going to your doctor for your annual exam and you have concerns and you have things you want to talk about, yeah. 15 minutes, you barely get in the door, yeah. literally. And so, you know, this patient was struggling with accepting the fact that she had terminal breast cancer. She had been reluctant to talk to anybody about what her goals were and what she was hoping for. And it, and it was interesting. At one point I asked her, I said, so you haven't really thought about death and dying. Okay. I get that. That can be a hard topic to talk about, even though we're all going to do this, right? None of us comes out of here alive. Yeah. We all get a one-way ticket. We don't want to talk about it. And I said, so what do you think, you know, when you think about your life and how it might end, what do you think that might look like? And she goes, oh, I'm going to live to be 120. And there's no circumstance in which that was going to be the case, but it, it shed this huge nugget of light on where she's coming from and as to why it's so hard to talk about death and dying, because in her mind, in her perception, that wasn't even on the table for yeah. a really long time. Yeah. But if you don't sit with a patient in that space yeah. and you don't give them the opportunity to talk about that, then they can't have that conversation and you can't start opening those doors to the more intimate, hard parts of that conversation of, you know, what are you afraid of? What is yeah. going on? What are you hoping for? What are the things that you really want to do that talking about this makes you feel like you need to shut down because you're afraid of not being able to do those things? Yeah. So, so Ari, yeah, what, what, is, what has pushed you to decide to kind of, I would say, veer off the typical path of a physician, right? Sure. Because what I, when I'm hearing you talk about this, I mean, you could stay, Mm -hmm. And keep fighting for your patients, fighting in healthcare to make it different, right? And you're instead, I mean, you're still doing that. So I don't want to make it sound like yeah. you're, doing it. you're still doing that. But right. you're also going off on this other path of channeling that energy and channeling that right. sort of drive toward the mission of starting a company that's going to address some of this for patients. And so how, how are you channeling this into being an entrepreneur? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, I think that's my question. I think... I think it's multifactorial. I know you and I started the conversation before we, we started recording, but some of it was related to the pandemic, to be honest. Um, I had to shift gears in a significant way during the pandemic. I single parent two young children. They were out of school for 13 months. Mm -hmm. I couldn't 
work a full-time clinical schedule at the same time while homeschooling at the time of five and a seven-year-old when it started. Yeah. Um, and I realized that the healthcare system really couldn't adjust and morph mm. to meet me where I was at and what I needed in order to be functional and operational at home. Mm. And so it really forced me to reconsider my priorities really and and made me realize that not only am i struggling with this but let's face it most caregivers in this country are women yeah, yeah. right mm -hmm. and who's been disproportionately impacted by covid women mm -hmm. because we're the predominant gender that is involved in child care and education and caregiving and all of these professions where where we do hold society sort of intact. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it, it became very evident that one, I didn't want just one patient or one family or one healthcare system to have the benefit of, of my years of education and expertise. Mm -hmm. I wanted everyone to have access to this level of expertise. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I started sort of dabbling into entrepreneurship when I was still working for Kaiser back in you know, the okay. early 2010 era. Okay. Um, and I had developed their first inpatient integrative um, symptom management service. So we were doing both traditional Chinese medicine and allopathic medicine in the hospital. And that's really what sent me down the path of taking care of patients who were primarily palliative and hospice because a lot of those patients fell off the bell curve and were the patients who needed something different. Mm -hmm. And so I spent some time at the GSB at Stanford and, and learned some entrepreneurial sort of skills and tools so that I could better advocate for developing that program. And I think that in that moment, I really came to recognize that I wanted to have more of a systemic impact. Mm -hmm. And so when COVID sort of hit and I had to rearrange my life and, and change what I was doing, um, I basically started doing COVID relief for the Naval Medical Center in, in San Diego and for the VA. And I left my full-time position because they were able to accommodate my scheduling needs. Uh -huh. um, and the rest of the time, while my kids were Zooming and I was supporting them Zooming, this idea of pallity just really kind of solidified in my head. Hmm. And I went, I need to build this. I need to build this for everybody. So was it like a... Um... I think when I when I hear these stories from from people about making this transition, right, either from whatever profession they had before, whether it's marketing or physician or whatever, and they're moving into something completely different, it happens differently for everybody. Some people, there's a moment mm -hmm. where it's like, I think I'm going to shift and go in a different direction. Sometimes it's a whisper. Sometimes it's a little nudge that just won't leave you alone. Like it just keeps nudging you and nudging and you and nudging you. What was that like for you when it's suddenly like something's brewing? I think it was brewing for a long time. I think there were whispers of you need to change things. You need you need to do things differently. And I think what happened is is over time I was able to change like one system at a time. When I when I did integrative medicine within the Kaiser system, that was huge. That was something that hadn't been done before. You know, when I first started talking about doing Chinese herbs and formulas and acupuncture in the hospital, people thought I was insane. Um, the problem was they had to balance that against the fact that I was also a really solid emergency medicine physician. And they're like, wait, she can intubate, she can run a code. And she's talking about doing this Chinese medicine thing. So it, it gave people pause. 
Um, but I think what came from all of that was this recognition that I, I've never fit a box well. I don't think I will ever fit a box well. And I think that when COVID hit and the circumstances basically necessitated me to break out of a mold in a box that I had been in, um, I, I really had this beautiful moment. Like I know COVID has been a horrible experience for most people. Yeah. And there are aspects of COVID that have been horrible for me as the clinician treating patients with COVID. But for me personally, I think that that awakening and realization that I didn't have to stay in the box was huge and that it was okay to, to take a leap of faith and, and trust in myself that I would land okay, even if I didn't do a traditional path. And I think that's really hard for a lot of physicians. I think we are so indoctrinated in our training you know, you, you do meds pre-med and then you do all these things in pre-med in order to get to med school. And then you do all these things to get into the residency you want in the field that you want. There's a lot of, of dogma within the healthcare system and how we train physicians. Um, and I suspect in other aspects of healthcare, but I can't speak to their training because it's not mine. But for the physician group, I can say for a fact that there's a lot of dogma and a path that people are sort of intended to walk down. Yeah. And I think that if you are in an entrepreneurial spirit, um, that can be hard sometimes because I think yeah. it's hard for you to stay doing something when you see opportunities for innovation and you see opportunities for change. Systems are slow to do those things. Individuals are faster, but institutions, it's harder. Yeah. Um, so there are a lot of physicians I talk to now who are frankly leaving yeah. clinical medicine and leaving what I refer to as the healthcare industrial complex, because they're not happy practicing medicine the way that they've been sort of forced into at this point because of the changes in the healthcare sort of milieu. Yeah. Well, and what I hear you talking about is this, this, this part of evolving into, to an entrepreneur. And there were certain things that were pushing you and other things about you that allowed yourself to evolve into it. And I think what I'm hearing is one becoming more comfortable with not fitting in the box. And honestly, I feel like entrepreneurs are all just a little bit weird. Sorry, entrepreneurs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, we're a little bit comfortable being a different because I think in society, yeah. there's a lot of pressure to maintain the status quo. Right. Which is why a lot of people, when they decide to leave a system, mm -hmm. like being a physician, they get a lot of pressure from people. Like, what do you mean you're leaving how, how yeah. could you possibly leave this place? I mean, this is a good yeah. place. You might have a pension or you might get a yeah. you know, 401k and like, how could you possibly leave this? Why don't you just stay a few more years, right? Yeah. Or whatever, and then go do it. And then followed by this impatience that I hear mm -hmm. you talking about, right? This impatience of like, nope, now is the time. There's an opportunity for me and I don't have the patience to wait any longer. Yeah. You had already waited a good long time, which is another piece I hear you talking about. Like this evolved yeah. over years, right? But you suddenly yeah. reach this point where you're like, now I can't take it anymore. I have to go. Yeah. Yeah. And okay. I, I think that for some people, that moment comes earlier in their careers. For some sure. people, it comes later. I don't think there's a right time or a place for it. I think it's no. very individual. Um, but I think that it, I don't think there's anyone who's been able to see what's happened in the last two years yeah. with COVID and healthcare, who yeah. couldn't see the writing on the wall. Yeah. I mean, healthcare has been in a very, very sort of dumpster fire mode for a while now. Mm -hmm. And then this was 
someone pouring jet fuel on it with COVID. And, and anyone who went into the healthcare professions did it because we genuinely care about people. We care about our patients. We want to spend time with patients. It's about the relationship, like we talked at the beginning. And I think that COVID has made that relationship even more difficult, right? I mean, we can't even see people's mouths and faces anymore. Yeah. There are colleagues I've worked with for two years who I have not seen anything but this part of their face. Right. And that's, we're humans. Yeah. Humans want connection. Yeah. Well, and our brains so, process so much information from facial expressions yes. and we process so much from that. And it's, yeah, it's a challenge. It's a challenge. Go back if you would, and I, I didn't want to leave this, you mentioned it, but uh, being a mom, being, um, and during the, during the pandemic, you mentioned how we know that women, statistically speaking, bear the brunt of parenting, households, all of, all of this sort of thing. And then on top of it, being a woman and a founder. Yeah. Can you just talk a little bit more because it sounds like for sure. you over the course of the pandemic, this is actually, I mean, yes, it's been very difficult, but also it has afforded you a lot of clarity. It has. Talk more about, about that, if you would. Sure. So um, I think people love to underestimate a woman who's doing a lot of things. Mm. I, I can't <laughs> even tell you how many people are like, you can't possibly become a founder right now. You know, there, there's a pandemic and your kids and you're working clinically. And, um, the, and there was this expectation um, that in being a founder, this could be the only thing I could focus my energy on, that, that there's this expectation that you can't possibly start a company and not only do that. Yeah, and look on my face. I'm like, yeah, hold, yeah. Hold my beer. Hold on a second. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> hold on a second. You know, we were talking about moving before all of this started. It was yeah. funny when we, so we moved to San Diego from Portland, Oregon. And I remember packing up my car to drive down here with the kids and the dog and, and our trailer in tow and all the things. And it was really funny because at one point my realtor looks at me, she goes, Ariane, you can't fit anything else into this car. Literally, you just can't. And I was like, hold my beer. Hold Wasn't my drinking beer. a beer. But, you know, and it was funny because when we got to San Diego and the doors opened, it was literally a clown car and stuff just <laughs> fell out from every which direction because I had tucked things like the kids had a wall between them of things and a mountain over them of, of comforters that were protecting them from other things. And here's the thing. Women are the epitome and definition of an efficient multitasker. We get more done in a day than most people probably could imagine. Like if someone actually sat down and just followed me around for a day and looked at all the things that can get done, I, I think that list would be exhausting. Um, be I, like I, the, I don't know how old you are, I don't want to ask, but um, like the family circus car cartoon, do you remember the family circus cartoons where they would have these lines? Family circus, I'm probably showing my age and also wherever I grew up, but um, there was this cartoon and they would do these line drawings of children over the course of the day. And it would be like, oh, the okay. you follow over the course of the day. And I yeah. think about that with myself all the time. I'm like, if somebody was drawing a map of my movement or yes. in the case of AI, somebody actually like had cameras and tracking me throughout my day, yeah. a more modern example, it would right. be- Yes. Like, yeah. Yes. Yes. 
And, yeah. and it was interesting because we, I, I had an early team member on our team who was getting really frustrated over the summer that things weren't moving at a certain clip. Hmm. And I was like, I'm in the middle of selling a house in one state, living in another state, setting up a household in another state while working and building a company. I was like, things are not going to move at somebody else's expected pace, mm -hmm. at least not at first, right? Because you need to set the stage to have the time and the space and the breathing room mm -hmm. to do all the other stuff, right? If you take your life and you throw it in like a deck of cards, throw it up in the air and have complete chaos, you're not going to be able to effectively work. No. And so I was like, I need to take this time. I need to take this two or three month transition block. Mm -hmm. to get my life in order mm -hmm. so that all of the pieces of the Jenga puzzle, and that's, and that's really an analogy that I resonate with. And I think probably most women listening to this podcast can resonate with, you need your Jenga puzzle really nicely lined up so that when you need to take a piece out, the entire tower doesn't fall down. So for myself, childcare, school, after school babysitters, having a schedule clinically that aligns with me being able to manage all of my household requirements, as well as managing my company. Yeah. Um, and what's beautiful about it is, is I took the time to set that stage right so that now I have that mental space and breathing room where I can sit here with you mm -hmm. on a random Thursday at nine o'clock in the morning or a little later. Um, and we can spend time having this conversation and I don't have to worry about, are there 10 other things that I'm responsible for in this exact moment and second? So I think a lot of it is really setting the stage for success and being and so needing to know what that is and being Absolutely. so intentional about it. But can I also add on to your example, if you don't mind, if you'll forgive me for also tweaking your Jenga, <laughs> so you can totally agree. I don't think there's anybody better to also rebuild the Jenga stack when it yes. does fall down. I agree. Does that make sense? I absolutely like, agree. I mean, because we do all of these things and I think women are so adept at, you, like you said, putting the yeah. Jenga pieces together in a way that make it actually work. So whether it's childcare and mm -hmm. you know food, feeding their children, working, building a company, all of the things are so good. And also, yep. I don't know anybody better at rebuilding the Jenga stack when it does in fact fall down because it does right at some point absolutely like, like we were supposed to have this interview last week and then your kid was out because of the COVID you know exposure and like I have yep. also had yep I, how many times I've lost count right it's like things yep. have to, like things do fall apart because school gets called off somebody's quarantining I now I have to shift the schedule now I have to yep. rearrange this sort of thing right and so we're like master puzzle stackers. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think, you know, to your point, and I think it's a really important point. Palady wasn't the first thought when I was building Palady. It started out with me just opening up a private concierge palliative practice. That was my initial thought. I was like, oh, I'm going to just have this practice and then I'll have control over my schedule and I'll be able to see my patients and spend time with them and do those things. And I still take on private concierge practice clients. Mm -hmm. But I realized that's not where my heart was in that I wanted to impact it being available. I felt like, okay, so a private concierge practice client is someone who can afford me. Mm -hmm. I don't want only patients who can afford me to have access to this level of care. 
I want the patient who lives in a rural part of the middle of this country who has no palliative care program within a 300 mile radius of her yeah. or him yeah. being able to access the support that they need. Yeah. And so it, it, I think it's okay to also have an idea, start an idea and iterate on that idea. And I think, you know, having spent as much time as I have in the Bay area uh, before coming to San Diego, I think one of the beautiful things about the Bay Area, you know, for better or worse, people can judge Silicon sure. Valley for a whole lot of reasons. Sure. But one of the beauties of being in the Bay Area and having, you know, Stanford and Berkeley and UCSF and, you know, amazing institutions of learning and academia is, is you have a lot of people who are really smart and have some really cool ideas. And one of the first things I learned at the GSB was iterate often, fail early, mm -hmm. so that you figure out what's working, what's not working, and, and adapt, right? Yep. And, and I think that applies in life as well, right? I am never going to be an Olympic skier, okay? I've tried skiing. It's awesome. It's fun. I can make my way down a blue slope and not kill myself at this point. But it's not what brings me joy and I hate the cold and I'm never going to get good enough at it because I don't enjoy it enough yeah. to spend my time and energy there. Yeah. And it's okay to learn about yourself and learn about your strengths and your weaknesses and what works for you and what doesn't work for you. Um, and I think for me, the biggest learning, and maybe it was because I had hit my 40s, so I'm going to admit that I'm in my 40s, um, you know is the fact that I've come to a place of being at peace with myself that I am never gonna fit someone else's box. I am never going to be able to look at a system and not see where I can make improvements and change in it. Yeah. I'm never gonna be that person who's gonna be comfortable just being. I am someone who loves iterating. I am someone who loves taking on a challenge and changing something for the better, for the good. Um, and it brings me joy. Like, and I have a unique vantage point, right? So I've done inpatient, outpatient, acute, chronic, life-saving, life-ending, Eastern, Western. I've seen the healthcare chessboard literally from every single aspect of it. Mm -hmm. And so for me to be able to look at a problem, identify where the gaps are, where the silos are, where the deficiencies are, and how to make those connections to fix it mm -hmm. is exciting. Yeah. I love that aspect of it. It, it makes me smile. It makes my whole spirit come alive. And it doesn't mean I don't have those moments in patient care. I still do. I still love my patients. I love those aha moments and those conversations or that good save in the ER. Cause I do still do those things. Mm -hmm. Um, and it, and I think frankly, it also informs my role as a entrepreneur mm -hmm. in the sense that you know, one of the challenges I think in innovating in the healthcare space is when you're doing it without any clinical expertise in that space, it may look great on paper, right? Yeah. That, that chalkboard drawing of how a process should go may look amazing and efficient and, and work really well. Yeah. But if you haven't been in the trenches and you haven't been in that foxhole when the system is breaking down and you know why those things may or may not work, yeah. you yeah. can't, you can't innovate at the same level. Yeah. And so I think having the clinical background and keeping my feet in, in that arena helps inform my decision-making mm -hmm. in building a company that's trying to transform healthcare. Yeah. 
Yeah. It's a microcosm within healthcare. I'm not going to fix all of healthcare, sure. but even, even the microcosm within the palliative and hospice sphere is, is a large space. Yeah. It's a huge space with yeah. a huge need. And I know it's going to take a village. I know it's going to take more than me or my company. And it's all about collaboration and networking and, and creating those relationships. Um, you know, it, it's funny, maybe for better or for worse, I don't want to compete with other players in this space. I want us to all be collaborating in this space because we all are coming at it with different ideas, different expertise, different, you know, lived experiences. Mm -hmm. And so what we bring to the table is equally valuable. Yeah. Well, you've definitely arrived at this really unique place in your life where you have lived experiences, you have gobs of training for lack of a better, <laughs> to, not to understate it, but so yeah. much training and expertise that has led you to this point. And you also have this vantage point. And I, and I think it's fair to say what you would said, like being in your forties. And I do my, also me being in my forties, like, I do feel like there's a shift. And I know you hear a lot of people talk about that. that mm -hmm. I don't know what it is, but something about being in your forties that just allows you the the I don't give an F sort of moment. Yeah. <laughs> like I'm just yeah. going to go after what I want and I feel a lot more free to do that. Yeah. I do see some, I'm, I marvel sometimes when I talk to, to younger founders who are like in their twenties or early thirties who have that. I'm just, I'm in awe that they yeah. come across it so early in life where they are free to go after it. But what I also love about your story is that I think so many people do fool themselves into thinking that when people are on a path to build a company, when they're on the path on this founder journey, that it just happens. It's like, I had an idea and I went after it and I got my funding and it all came into place and all the puzzle pieces came together. And in reality, this can take a decade or more yeah. for a lot of people, not everybody, but for a lot of people. And yeah. I think that what happens is people ultimately get, they succumb to these voices in their head of saying, you must be doing something wrong because this is a struggle and this feels bad. Oh, so, no. So oh, no. <laughs> yeah. oh, no. Oh, no. But no, talk no. a little bit more about that because you have to have some of these voices in your yeah. mind. Oh, oh. All along your journey have been like, you're crazy. Regularly. Enough. What are you doing? So Regularly. tell us about what, what your little monster is, whatever you want to call it, what this voice yeah. is and how you deal with it. Oh, boy. So um, I know you're familiar with the term. Maybe some listeners are or aren't, but there's this term called rapid cycling. It usually refers to people who suffer with bipolar disorder, who they go from really, really high to really, really low. Um, like they can have moments of euphoria and then they crash with massive depression. Yes. Um, I think being a founder is the ultimate rapid cycling experience because you'll have yeah. a great meeting, a great investor interaction, um, a great team collab that happens. And you're like, I'm on cloud nine. This is amazing. This was the best choice ever. And then you have your days where you're like, oh my God, everyone keeps telling me they're going to write a check and no one's written the check yet. You're and it. you're going, what is going on here? Why am I having such a hard time getting this to move forward? Yeah. Um, I think that it is hard. And I think that you need to have conviction in your vision mm -hmm. as the driving force behind those bad days mm -hmm. where you go, I know this is the right thing still, you know? Um, and one of my mentors- it's grounding, right? It's very it's grounding. Very, it's a very grounding force. Mm -hmm. Yes. One of my mentors once said to me, do the right thing and the money will follow. Um, and every time I have a moment like that where I'm like, oh, mm -hmm things aren't going fast enough. 
Yeah. We haven't gotten to this next level. And especially if you're someone who's on social media, so I'm on Twitter, I'm on LinkedIn, and you see all these other companies that you may or may not know their founders and you're like, how did they how just are, get this? How, are they doing how, this? Come, yeah. how come they're this far ahead of me? But you don't see the conversations and the meetings and the rapid cycling they're doing behind the scenes. It's the Instagram version. I mean, I'm yes. like, oh, I post yes. on Instagram just because yeah. I feel like it's the place where we do the most filtering and the most, yeah. all of that. And so I think that so many people, they, they, they expect the Instagram version of success, right? It's like, this is yes. amazing. This person, they look amazing. They sound yeah. amazing. Everything is going great. They have money coming in the door. Clearly yeah. it has all been an up, you know, it's all been going steadily. Yes. Up. And, and that's never the case, or I, I won't say never, cause you should never say never, but the percentage of, of founders yeah. who have that experience are far, far and few between. Um, I think that one of the things that has helped me um, is finding a circle of founders yeah. who are being supportive of each other. So there's a group of both men and women founders that I've gotten to know over the course of developing Palady in the last year or so. And they're my biggest cheerleaders. They're my soundboards. They're my bit, biggest critics. Like if I say something that I'm like, yeah, I'm thinking of doing this. And they're like, yeah, that's just dumb. Don't do that. <laughs> um, and it's great because they're people that I trust and they're people with whom I've developed this rapport where like I can go to them and get honest feedback and also have them still be like, it's not when you succeed, but not if you succeed, it's when you succeed. It's we're going to cheerlead you because we do believe in your vision. We do believe in what you're trying to build. Yeah. Um, and I think for me personally, what's been gratifying and that I hold on to is, is there's not a single person I talk to literally, no matter whether it's in my personal life, professional life, founder life, you know, all of those universes mm -hmm. who does not have an experience with serious illness, death or dying. Yeah that this palady platform and vision does not resonate with mm -hmm. doesn't matter if it's like the president of blue cross blue shield yeah. who i've chatted with or if it's just my neighbor who's struggling with a spouse who's very ill it's the inevitability of the human experience right like it's yeah. the one thing we're all guaranteed to do yeah this resonates with people on a different level on a different wavelength. And I think COVID has really ripped that bandaid off of it in terms of people, even though they're still uncomfortable talking about it, they are way more open to a conversation about it now yeah. than I think in probably the totality of humanity of several centuries, Yeah, people have been willing to open up about it. And so whenever I have those moments of doubt, and trust me, they happen a lot, the voices in my head, you know, in terms of I joke around, I say I have a concert hall in my head. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes it's a full orchestral arrangement of what's going on up there. And sometimes it, it, it dims to just a gentle, quiet, you know, yo-yo ma concert where it's all <laughs> oh, kind of chill and quiet really. and serene. Yeah. Um, but the concert hall is always going and the concert hall needs to be fed and it needs to be fed positivity and support and creativity and and mm. constructive feedback and criticism and those moments come and go you know it's i'm looking at your background and it looks to me like an ocean it's waves right they come in they go out yeah. and it's being able to really withstand you know every once in a while you get a rip current kind yeah. of wave that comes and grabs you and you, things don't go the way that you planned and you just got to adjust, right? You well, don't fight the rip current. 
You go I was with just going to say, you're not fighting the rip current. And I think right. that's such an important thing. It's so, it, it's intellectually very easy to say. Like, yeah. I feel like this is probably the number one thing that I work on with people. Yeah. Founders in particular is this rapid cycling mm -hmm. and coming to terms with, with rapid cycling and that it's okay yeah. to actually have rapid cycling. And in fact, it's expected. Right. Because you're not, nobody's immune from this sort of thing. Right. But mm -hmm. us gaining comfort and acceptance that the, that the tides come and go and the, the waves come and go and that it's okay to have yep. the waves. Yep. It sounds very simple, but it's very hard. It's very it is. Hard. It yeah. is. And, and I, I can, you know, very honestly admit that there have been texts at, you know, ungodly hours at night with, with friends who are founders being like, oh my God maybe I should just go back to doing clinical medicine. Maybe I shouldn't be doing this. What was I thinking? This is a horrible idea. I'm spending all this time away from my kids and my kids never see me off the phone. My phone's always on, you know, there are moments where of course there's questioning that happens. Yeah. Um, but I would say that the number of moments of questioning are vastly outnumbered mm -hmm. by the moments of aha, mm -hmm. yeah, this is, this is, this is going, this is moving forward. It's doing things in a way that's meaningful and impactful and where I see yeah. things progressing. Yeah. Well, and you really but, have to believe it's possible. Like you were saying with, yeah. with this community that you have where they're like, it's not, if it's when, right. Mm -hmm. And I'm not, yeah. I'm not really, a. Um, I don't ever use the language of manifesting. Like a lot of people do. It's just not my, yeah. it's, it's not the way I think about it. I think yeah. much more in terms of how our, like the nature of our self-talk. Yeah, right? absolutely. And so if we say something to the effect of it can happen, I can do yeah. this, right? It's very different. And I don't mean it in a delusional sense, but I mean, in a yeah. very real sense, you will yeah. continue to move toward it. Whereas if you continually talk mm -hmm. to yourself, like, could I do this? Could I not, you know, and, and then things yeah. will happen when you actually are saying like, yeah. I just have to move toward it. I have to take the steps to keep me moving toward it. Right. Yeah. It's very different. And I think the self-talk is a big part of it. I think that, you know, to your point about why women in their forties are more likely to do this. I think there's a certain level of confidence that comes with, with just maturing over time yeah. and realizing what you're capable of and, and knowing what your boundaries are. Cause you know, we didn't talk about boundaries, but part of it is also putting up boundaries and saying, this is something I'm willing to do. This is something I'm not willing to do. This is something that I'm willing to invest my time, my energy, my emotions, um, my being into. And this is something that I'm not willing to do that for anymore. And so I think recognizing your own value, your own worth, your, your own integrity is so critical to being able to take those steps forward because when you're in a space where you're self-doubting and self-questioning and allow other people to dictate what your boundaries should or shouldn't look like, it's really hard to take those steps forward because it's, you know, using your manifesting analogy, you know, a lot of entrepreneurship and, and foundership, I don't know if that's a word, but is, is literally putting a foot in front of the other in the hopes that the ground underneath you is going to appear and be solid and having the faith that you can take that next step, knowing that it, it, it couldn't possibly be there and, and you'll crash. And what would that crash and burn look like? Um, and at least for me personally, I can say that every time I've taken a step towards something, 
where I felt that in my gut, you know, like deep visceral, this feels like the right step to me. Even knowing that I had a lot of naysayers who were like, mm, I don't know, traditional Chinese medicine, you know, you want to do another set of boards, you want to move states, like I can, the number of examples popping into my head is, is, is not small. Yeah. Um, when I followed my gut and I've listened to that little voice in my head that goes, no, this is the right decision. I would say 99% of the time that voice was right. And the times I've questioned myself and not listened to that voice have been the times that I've gone, oh, should have listened to that. And I think, again, getting into your 40s, I think you've had that experience enough times to hear that more clearly, maybe. And, and I totally agree with you. I'm envious of those people who at age 20, 30 have figured that out. I'm amazed. I, I'm like, what yeah. was I doing in my 20s? I was a child. <laughs> I, was like, I was just really a dumb kid. I was <laughs> in med school and training for was, forever. Yeah. Yeah. I work with, you know, and see these young founders are in their 20s and they're raising millions of dollars. And I'm like, man, that's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> that is yeah. not what I was doing in my 20s. So I, yeah, I'm yeah. amazed at people that can gain that sense of clarity mm -hmm. and, um, and to know themselves so well and what they want yeah. so well. I'm always in awe of that. Um, but I think you speak so clearly on, on this, this journey. And I, I just want to say thank you for speaking so clearly on this journey of what it's been like. And so honestly about what this journey has been like for you, that it's not like a clear path from point A to point B that it's this ups and downs and you're dealing with the voices in your head and you're dealing with the naysayers and you have still maintained the course of really veering off the course, I would yeah. say in a way, I mean, in a good way, right? But allowing yourself the space to do that. I have one last question for you and then I'm, yeah. I'm gonna let you go because I know you have a busy day ahead of you, but how do you allow yourself the space and the time? I know we talked a little bit earlier about allowing time for other people but how do you carve out that time and space for yourself so that you can hear that voice, to listen to that voice that's telling you the direction that you need to go? I don't know if I have a aha, amazing pearl to drop on that. Um, Just whatever I, works. <laughs> I, 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 I think that for me, those moments, um, it'll sound funny, but they actually come to me often in the shower. <laughs> You're not alone. I think so many people talk about insights in the shower. Yeah. 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 I, I think it's a combination of things. I think there's something very meditative about being in the shower. If you're yeah. not being interrupted by children knocking on your door and putting hands on, on the actual shower door. Or under the door. Something. Or... Yes. I have a, I have a picture of my, of my youngest when she was probably, she was a toddler and I was in a friend's house in a bathroom and it had one of those frosted doors. And I took a picture of her on the other side with her hands up on the door like this. <laughs> and I think of that picture often, but when I'm in that meditative space, which for me, maybe the shower for other people, it might be something else. Some people are really good at meditating. I am not the, the pillow meditator person. I am, I am not capable of sitting down on a pillow and doing that. I've tried. For me, the shower is that space. Yeah. And what happens is, is I think it's the free flow of thoughts mm -hmm. without a set of expectations or an agenda yep. that allow that clarity to come through. 
Yeah. Um, so for me, I would say that's probably the space where it happens the most. Mm -hmm. um, other than that, it happens for me a lot in the middle of the night or occasionally when I'm riding my Peloton. Um, cool. occasionally I will have a moment on the Peloton where I will get off the Peloton and I will just have a free flow dump of thoughts onto paper. Um, and again, it's, I think because I'm getting out of my own way Yes. and allowing myself to not be critical of what the thoughts are, but I just am allowing them to come forth Yeah. and then having the ability to look at them more objectively after they've just kind of had that mind dump, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think you're spot on. And I don't think it has to come from sitting on a pillow and meditating. I mean, for some people, like you said, that really works. Although I think that um, it's spread a little bit too widely that meditation is like the way that it that people come to insight and things like that, or the way they clear headspace. I think there's so many different ways. And the shower is actually really common, Ariane. The shower is really yeah. common for people or like walks or exercise. I think these are all, all lots of spaces where people, and I think it, you're right where it's really about, it's about kind of clearing the plate. There's nothing else battling for your attention necessarily in those moments, yeah. right? It's like, you can just be in the shower. You can just be on the bike. You, you know, you don't have notifications yeah. on your phone, hopefully. I mean, things like that, right? It's really hard to escape. Um, yeah. But, um, but yeah, no. So I think it's, I think your experience is not an uncommon one with that. I think a lot of people share that. Yeah. Well, I've definitely, um, I enjoy those moments. I enjoy those aha moments where I'm like, ah, oh, that was a good thought. That was a yeah. really good, like coalescing of ideas that suddenly gelled in a way that previously I was struggling with. How do I get these different thoughts to come together? Yeah. Um, and hopefully Jeremy won't give me grief for calling him out in this podcast, but, uh, <laughs> but it was really funny because he's like, oh, that never works for me. And then he was like, oh my God, that totally worked. I had this idea. I've been sitting That's with so it, struggling with it. Just clicked. I literally yeah. encourage my husband to go take a shower sometimes just so he can help quiet his mind and then get some insights into things because he, yeah. I can actually, this is again, me calling out somebody in the podcast. <laughs> I can actually hear him having conversations yeah. in the shower sometimes. Yeah. Like he's just having full on conversations yeah. um, with yeah. himself where I know he's working through something. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, yeah. Anyway. Well, that's a yeah. fun note to end. That's a fun note to end on. <laughs> we're talking about, our talking about showering. showering. Yes. <laughs> uh, here, I'll, I'll make it a little bit less visually appealing. <laughs> um, music. For me, music is a great way to actually get some ideas yeah. to come together. Yeah. Do you have a favorite? Like a favorite genre oh. or decade or anything like that? Um. Yes and no, not to like be really non-specific in my answer. There are certain pieces of music I listen to for very specific reasons. So like when I'm in, in power mode for me personally, um, and, and maybe this uh, podcast shout out will, will get me a, a, an interaction with said individual, but like I'll listen to Pink or The Chicks or... Um, cold play. Um, like I'll find something where there's a lot of like powerful mm -hmm. storytelling and energy and that works for me. And then there are times where I just need some quiescence and, and I'll, and yo-yo ma is actually a go-to in our household at night where mm -hmm. I will play it going to sleep and the kids go to sleep listening to it. And it just, 
kind of is more of the the quiet yeah let let the thoughts just kind of marinate music versus my let me produce music yeah so. yeah love it love it yeah Awesome. Ariane, this has been so lovely. Thank you so much for sharing your time and your wisdom with me and with anybody who listened to this. We so appreciate it. Thank you so much.